The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Ecclesia, this is Pastor Chris, and it's with great joy and actually a ton of enthusiasm that I get to share with you today. I'm directly on the border of Colombia and Venezuela. Uh, We're sharing time today with our friends that are indigenous peoples from Venezuela. Uh, They're living in what I can only call impossible conditions here. And I'm really grateful that our friends from Living Water International have come to join us. We're uh, assessing some of the needs for clean water Uh, They're gathering water from uh, not a safe source and they're bringing it to their family and their kids uh, in ways that aren't promoting health and hygiene and sanitation. And we want to look at how we can help with sanitation needs, bathrooms, the basics that are really needed here. I'm going to tell you a lot more about these people. They're beautiful people and they're in need. And we're a church that's about to enter into Lent. So Ecclesia, my job today is to invite you into a holy and a sacred fast. Now, some of you may wonder, is fasting really something I need to do? Well, let me do my best to make the case to you, but I believe um, that if we will join in this fast together, a Lenten fast, that it will not only transform our hearts and lives, our uh, our inner life, our spiritual life, it'll also be a part of transforming our bodies, our community, and what I'm gonna propose to you today, I think will be a part of changing the world. You're gonna notice that where I am uh, in this spot, you're gonna hear a lot of noise. There's birds, there's roosters. There's literally the largest pig I've ever seen in my life. There are a lot of babies crying, which does feel like ecclesia. I can appreciate that a lot. Uh, You're gonna hear a lot of noise. It's a a bit chaotic here at the border, but it's also beautiful because the people are beautiful. So ecclesia, why would we fast? Well, for one, Jesus did. So if Jesus, while he was here on earth, he was fully God, fully man, he thought it was an important spiritual practice to fast. In fact, it was the first thing he did in his public ministry. He was baptized by John the Baptist, and then he went from the Jordan River, he walked to, uh, traditionally we know it as a mountain called Quarantana, 40, it means 40, and it's the place where Jesus spent 40 days and he fasted, and he was alone with God. Scriptures also tell us in that period, he was tempted. Why else would we fast? Well, Jesus also assumed that we would fast. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says just as clearly and just as succinctly as you possibly can, he says, when you fast and pray, not if you fast and pray, but when you do, he just knew that we would fast and we would pray. And the truth is, if we have a weakness uh, in our spiritual life as Christians, I would suggest to you that one of the most significant is that we often fail to fast. And Part of it is because we live in Western culture where we tend to get what we want. Uh, I remember growing up, I didn't know much about fasting from my church. The person I learned about fasting from, it felt like, uh, was my favorite basketball player. Like you, I hope, uh, I am and was a Houston Rockets fan. I loved watching us win a couple of championships. And it was amazing in those runs to watch possibly the greatest player of all times. I know Michael Jordan, blah, 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 LeBron, blah, blah, blah. I can only tell you that I watched Hakeem Olajuwon do things that I'd never seen anybody do, and that he often did them in the midst of Ramadan. He was fasting. He didn't have food or water throughout the day. 
That's, that's a more typical Muslim fast. I wanna invite you today into a Lenten fast, and I believe it's a beautiful way to fast. So Ecclesia, we also enter into a fast because it's our way to join with the children of Israel in the Exodus narrative. And I believe, Ecclesia, that our journey during Lent is to join with God's people is to be a part of the Exodus narrative. What, what was beautiful about the Exodus narrative? Well, it's, it's God's way, it's his metaphor, his story of rescuing his people. And we're a people in need of rescue. And in Lent, we enter into that story, much like the children of Israel, we don't have to spend 40 years in the desert, thanks be to God. It's a beautiful baby behind me. We don't have to spend 40 years in the desert. But much like the children of Israel, we're invited into God's narrative to say, you're not created to make bricks for Pharaoh. You, you exist for a reason, and the reason that you're here is much more significant than just making bricks. And together, we get to find our true spiritual purpose. So what does the Bible say about a fast? When I read to you from Isaiah, I'm gonna be in uh, the prophet Isaiah's words and teaching in Isaiah 58. And God's people were talking they were engaging the eternal one. And this is what they said. They said, why, why didn't you notice how diligently we fasted before you? We humbled ourselves with pious practices and you paid no attention. God's people thought, if we sacrifice, you're gonna notice and you're gonna bless us. And it's beautiful in Isaiah because God gives us a clear explanation of what a fast that's pleasing to him would look like. So hear this, Ecclesia. God says this. He says, I have to tell you, on those fasting days, all you were really seeking was your own pleasure. Now, most of us would think, how is fasting a way to seek pleasure? But he explains, he says, besides you were busy defrauding people and abusing your workers. Your kind of fasting, God says, is pointless. For it only leads to bitter quarrels, contentious backbiting, and vicious fighting. Literally, God's saying, you just got hangry, right? You, you fasted and yeah, you did the thing, but not, something didn't happen in your heart. So what would it look like for us? God says this, he says, what kind of fast do I choose? Is a true fast simply some religious exercise for making a person feel miserable and woeful? The answer is no. Is it about how you bow your head like a bent reed or you dress or where you sit? Is this what you call a fast? The eternal one finds good and proper? And God says, no. What I want is this. And I want you to consider the possibility that our Lenten fast could be exactly this. To liberate those tied down and held back by injustice. To lighten the load of those heavily burdened. I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, I've never seen people more heavily burdened than the Venezuelans that I've watched carrying loads of things back into Venezuela. Literally, on this last trip, I, I saw a guy carrying an entire washing machine on his head. He, every five steps, it looks like he was gonna fall. These are our friends, our brothers, our sisters, our family, and they're heavily burdened. Then he says, to free the oppressed and to shatter every type of oppression. God says, a fast for me involves sharing your food with people who have none. Ecclesia, what if we fasted from some things and we shared abundantly with people that are hungry in this place, giving clothes to those who need them? Literally, our brothers and sisters, we got kids running around this place. When I ask them, what do you need? They just say, we, just, we want some clothes. And we're talking about friends and neighbors that don't have clothes. 
giving those who are homeless a space in your home. Then, oh then, God says, light will break out like the warm golden rays of a rising sun and in an instant you will be healed. Can you imagine this? That your healing, I believe both physically and spiritually could come by abstaining from some things. Your righteousness will proceed and protect you. The glory of the eternal will follow and defend you. Then when you call out, my God, where are you? The eternal one will answer, I am here, I am here. If you remove the yoke of oppression from the downtrodden among you, stop accusing others and do away with mean and inflammatory speech. Do you hear that? What if the words that we spoke in this season were just kind words? We live in a culture that's filled with wanting to tear people down. What if we're the people that in this season we abstain from some things and every word we speak is intended only to build people up? He says, if you make sure that the hungry and the oppressed have all that they need, then your light will shine in the darkness and even your bleakest moments will be as bright as clear day. The eternal one will never leave you. He will lead you in the way that you should go. And when you feel dried up and worthless, God will nourish you and give you strength. And you will grow like a garden lovingly tended. You will be like a spring whose water never runs out. You know, it's Jesus that uses that metaphor again later in the Gospels. It says, there would be a living water that would flow eternally. Ecclesia, I love the opportunity that we have to join together in a beautiful and a sacred fast that could both transform each of us, our hearts, our bodies, right? Because as we eat less, as we focus on what we might limit or restrict ourselves from, I believe we're gonna be healthier. And that's not a bad thing. This is not a, a diet. It's not Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig, but it is an opportunity to say, hey, for me, I, I don't need to live my life in a constant state of feasting. And that's exactly what I wanna talk to you about today. I wanna share with you one of my favorite pieces of art that relates to Lent. This is a piece by Bruegel. Can you imagine this piece was created, was painted in 1558. And yet to me, it's a documentary that tells a story that in this very moment, uh, speaks to where I am. Uh, what you'll see in this piece that Bruegel made in 1558 is that it's two competing narratives. Uh, it's literally a fight or a joust uh, between Carnival or Mardi Gras, right? The celebration that precedes Lent because people in, in the 1500s, they knew if we're gonna fast for a little while, we ought to get ready and party for a little while. So I, I love you, New Orleans. You're one of my favorite cities on the planet. Uh, but the truth is you go to New Orleans, it's a lot of Mardi Gras and it's not much Lent, right? So everybody's ready for Fat Tuesday, and uh, but not many people are celebrating Lent and fasting. I, I love this piece because it holds the tension. What you see uh, right in the middle, you'll notice uh, the epitome of Fat Tuesday, right? There's a guy on a barrel, he's on a sled. That sled would have been like the sled they would use in the... Uh, what would be like an ancient Mardi Gras parade. He's on a barrel, obviously filled with some kind of whiskey or something, somebody's drinking out of it. And he's holding on his, uh, uh, on his head, he's got a pork pie, he's got uh, a pig on a stick. Uh, he's got meat basically all over him, right? And you'll notice on the Lenten side, there's a lot of fish, which would be much more common during Lent. This is the thing, Ecclesia, one of the reasons I love this piece is we're made for both. You're made for Fat Tuesday. We're made, I'm telling you, we are made for Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday ought to be a feast of all feasts. And you know what, during Lent, 
every Sunday is a feast. This is what I love about a Christian fast. It's not Ramadan. It's not a chance to abuse your body or to appear to be pious. It's an opportunity to enter into a rhythm, a sacred rhythm, where for six days, for 40 days total, but more, no more than six days at a time, we abstain from certain things. I'm gonna suggest a certain fast to you that I'm hoping we'll all join in together. And every Sunday is a taste of the resurrection. Every Sunday we feast. I don't know if you grew up doing this, but we grew up going to my grandmother's and having pot roast, and I didn't realize that we just intuitively knew Sunday was a day that family ought to be together and we ought to feast, and it was a beautiful rhythm. And for 40 days we will fast, and for six days during Lent we will feast, and we'll end with the greatest feast of all, the highest holy day in the Christian calendar, Easter. So Ecclesia, how might we fast together during Lent? This is what I'd like to suggest to you, is that if we would join together and eat during our fasting days a very similar meal to what we serve in the kitchen of La Frontera Iglesia, the church that we partner with, our partner here at the border in Cucuta, Colombia, at the border with Venezuela. Um, we open that kitchen and we get to feed hungry Venezuelans. And the typical meal here uh, would be really simple. It would be something like uh, rice and beans and chicken and salad and tortillas. You could come up with any four or five things, but I'm wondering if together we could enter into a pattern to eat during Lent as often the poor would eat. Um, now, you can imagine, you can go to Papacitos and you can get a salad, you can get a salad with chicken. You can go and get rice and beans and if you got tortillas on there, you can get tacos just about any place. It's, it's not that you won't be able to eat, it's just that we'll enter into a practice uh, that for me at least is really healthy because what I tend to do is I tend to wake up and uh, focus on my appetites or my desires. Um, most of us, we, we're not the richest people in the world, uh, all of us, but most of us have enough resources to be able to eat what we want when we want. We can wake up one day and decide, right? I, I'm really, I'm thinking I want tacos. I'm thinking today uh, I want dim sum. I'm thinking today uh, I'd like to go to a Brazilian steakhouse. Those are more expensive. You can't do that every day, but there's, we got options. So I can see it's our opportunity to wake up each morning and instantly begin to think of those who are struggling, those who are oppressed, to join with what God called us to in Isaiah 58, to lift the heavy burdens off of those who are carrying more than they can carry. I literally, I can point you directly to our friends and neighbors, our brothers and sisters here that are carrying too much. We get to free uh, the oppressed. We get to be a part of feeding the hungry. We get to bring clothes to those in need. And I believe, there's these 40 days, if we would wake up and instantly join in prayer. I've written a book called A Place at the Table, and it's simply an invitation to solidarity with the poor in this Lenten season. And what we wanna do is get up, and I've got devotionals written for you for each day. We wanna make the book a gift to you. You can make a donation for the book, but we're simply gonna put it towards the work that we get to do to feed people, clothe people, bring clean water in this place at the border of Venezuela and Colombia. We have opportunities both on this side in Colombia as we operate our kitchen where you can eat simply as our brothers and sisters here have the opportunity to eat. 
We're going to join with partners and friends like our friend, Pastor William. Pastor William Ramos is a pastor in Caracas, Venezuela. He's become a good friend over recent days. Uh, we've shared uh, time together. I'm going to tell you about a lot of Venezuelan pastors that are new friends. And part of what I learned from Pastor William is that his church is a lot like the church I started uh, out in the country. I was a pastor of a very small church in the country. And we quickly learned that if we had a potluck, everybody came to church. Now, those people weren't just hungry, they were craving fellowship. But in Caracas, what Pastor William tells me is that when he's out on the streets, he has the same experience I have as a pastor. He often has kids come up in the church, uh, some that he knows well, some that he doesn't know very well, but they instantly, he's their pastor. They love him, they come up and give him a hug. And he says, you know what they ask me as soon as I give me a hug? They say, are we eating at church this Sunday? They wanna know, they, they eat once a month. Ecclesia, we're gonna join with them. And literally, for a dollar a person, we can feed his church. It's about 300 people. $300 a week, we can feed everybody at his church. And our suggestion to, to Pastor William is to say, it'd be great if you could tell the kids, we're now eating every Sunday. We're gonna feed kids, we're gonna feed their families every Sunday. Ecclesia, this is our opportunity to get up in the morning, read a devotional from the book. I wanna invite you to join with a prayer list. If you'll send an email to Lent, at ecclesiahouston.org. We're gonna send you some prayer updates, some brothers and sisters currently in need that you can pray for. Many of them are gonna be friends and brothers and sisters and neighbors that we're gonna have the opportunity to bless because what we're going to do, I'm praying together is, I don't know about you, but during Lent, I'm gonna abstain from wine and uh, I started to say coffee, but I'm not. I'm gonna keep drinking coffee because I need to keep my sanity. So do whatever you wanna do. I'm gonna abstain from wine and I'm gonna abstain from most of the restaurants I would go to because I'm gonna be focused on eating these very simple meals. And you know what's gonna happen? I'm gonna save some money. And as I save that money, I'm gonna gather those resources and together we're gonna to share them through Ecclesia to be a blessing to those in need here. I don't know how much we'll raise from uh, you not going to eat dim sum or me not going to eat sushi. That's gonna hurt a little bit. But you know what, every Sunday I'm gonna feast and I'm probably gonna wanna eat sushi or I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna have some things I'm excited to eat. And, and on Sundays, I wanna encourage you to do this. Please, pause your fast, join in the feast because Christians were made to both fast and feast. That's the people we are. And then I'm gonna be telling you more about as we gather those offerings, we're gonna be helping churches in Venezuela celebrate Easter with a grand feast. Now you know in Venezuela, when you can't get access to meat, fish, or basic necessities, um, it's hard to throw a great party. And so what we wanna do is come around our brothers and sisters and help them have a great Easter. As we join in this Lenten journey, God's gonna bless us. We got a bit more we wanna share with you. Um, the stories that I get to share with you from this place are important in our journey. And now we wanna just invite you to consider what God may have for you over these 40 days. I would love to be a part of a church where each and every one of us joined in a sacred and holy Lent. We fulfill what Isaiah 58 has for us. I believe Ecclesia will transform our hearts, our bodies, and will be a part of transforming the world. Ecclesia, God bless you and allow me a moment to pray for you. Lord God, I thank you that though many of us in our journey and our own spiritual disciplines have not excelled at fasting. We've often been good at what Bruegel paints on the other side of the portrait uh, of getting what we want. We're grateful that on the Lenten side, uh, there's the sense that everyone has enough they can eat. It's not that any of us will starve, it's just that we're gonna limit ourselves. It's also, as we see on that other side of the Bruegel painting, there are a lot of people uh, asking for help. 
seeking alms. And what we know is that during Lent, Christians have typically shared generously from what they have to those in need. God, help us to be those people. Transform us on the inside and the outside, just as you told the Pharisees. Don't just clean the outside of the cup so that you look good on the outside, but deal with what's on the inside. We thank you that Lent is an opportunity to do that. And we pray that you would do an amazing thing in our church and in churches across Colombia and Venezuela as we get to serve our brothers and sisters in need. We pray this prayer together and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. God bless you, Ecclesia. It's a gift to be able to um, open the scripture with you for a few moments, share a few thoughts that I think will be transformational for you. I love that technology offers you the opportunity like to meet my Shipibo native friends from Venezuela. Um, it at least gives you some visual. Um, you can't smell it. Um, you, you don't have the sense of the flies that were buzzing around me. Anybody notice I kept swatting myself um, you don't know what it's like to, um, make, uh, my first trip there, I uh, had the beautiful experience of stepping in human feces, right? Because they don't have bathrooms, right? And it's everywhere. And you leave and think, I, I got a shower. Um, you don't, you don't get the full sense, but I hope, uh, that you have this sense of these are our brothers and sisters. And what we read in Isaiah is possible. We can experience an inner transformation that flows out of us in a way that brings justice and hope to other people. And what could be better than that? I wanna invite you as we open the scriptures today just to remind you to contemplate what the scriptures are. The, the Bible is so helpful for you, uh, but I'm afraid in the culture that we live in, we have often wanted to turn the Bible into a self-help book. It's not a self-help book, it's very helpful. Um, you can make a good living if you, uh, if you want to be a TV preacher that tries to turn every passage into self-help. Uh, but the reality is the Bible is one, it's, you know the Bible's not a book, right? The Bible is a, it's a library, right? It's, it's a collection of books, and all those books are different. The, the Gospels are different accounts uh, of Christ's life and ministry. Um, some of those books are letters. They're from Paul. They're really informal, but they really help the church and shape the church. Some tell the stories like in Acts or the historical books of the Old Testament. Some are actual worship uh, hymns and poems and songs. Uh, some are apocalyptic literature that tell the story like in Daniel or in Revelation in really beautiful and outlandish ways. Uh, some in places like Genesis offer a poetic rendering of how God created all things, right? Can you tell I'm fired up at the, about the Bible? Is anybody else fired up about the Bible today? Some of you are staring back at me like you don't even care that I'm talking to you about the Bible. You should at least smile when the pastor talks about how great the Bible is. At least smile back at him. Um, it, it's a gift, right? And the Bible is very helpful, but it's not, this is what you need to hear, it's not a recipe book. You, you don't get to just read these things and then mix four things together and you'll always get that. But it is always an invitation into a relationship with the one that will transform you. And Lent is an invitation into a deeper relationship with the very God that will transform you. And so I want to read to you in John chapter 6. Before I do, I want to read one of my favorite quotes uh, of a book that I read recently. It is, that's why I had a little self-help tear. It's kind of a self-help book. I, I loved uh, the diagnosis more than the conclusion, but let me read to you part of the diagnosis. Uh, Marcy Shimoff says this. She says, many people in Western culture, I would just say many people in Houston, Texas, are striving for success. 
They want the great home. They want their business to work. They want all these outer things. But what we found in our research is that having these outer things does not necessarily guarantee what we really want, which is happiness. So we go for these outer things thinking they're going to buy us happiness, but it's backward. You need to go for the inner joy, the inner peace, the inner vision first, and then all of the outer things appear. Uh, One, I'm not sure all the outer things will appear. Um, But what happens when the inner things are transformed, and, and her conclusions are different than mine, but Lent is an invitation to transform your inner life, and what I believe will happen, Ecclesia, is for sure the outer things won't matter as much. And there are a couple of ways to go about that. I think the best one is to seek spiritual transformation. There are people in this room that can go, I can tell you why the outer things don't matter because I've actually accomplished them. We got people all across the room that could just tell you like, I, I went after the house. I finally built the house, right? The house to end all houses. This was the house. And I got into the house. And when I got into the house, I figured out it was just a house. People that say, if I just had this job, if, my, if I just had this level of success, if I just had this car, right? Anybody remember I was 16 and I just believed if I had a Jeep, the world would be perfect, right? If I had a Jeep, chicks would be after me like crazy. It would be annoying how many chicks would be after me. I just could feel like this sense of like driving with the top down and how great it was going to be. And then you get a Jeep in Houston, Texas, and what happens? You sweat all the time. You stink, Right? <laughs> Anybody know anybody with a Jeep? They stink, I guarantee you. There's not a deodorant that works for a Jeep, right? And you know what else happens? People steal all your stuff, right? (laughs) Literally, people see a Jeep, they're like, that doesn't have any security, let's see what they have, right? They'll just take anything in your car, because it's a Jeep, right? You get a Jeep and realize, like, it's just a car. And, And you get the job and you realize, at the end of the day, a house is just a house, and a job is just a job, and a car is just a car. And what we need, Ecclesia, is an inner life that's transformed and that sees the outer things for what they really are. Now, that said, I want to invite you into a story in John that holds that tension. Jesus performs a miracle where he offers the outer things, but what you're going to see in this story is there are a bunch of people fired up about Jesus because they think he's a vending machine for the outer things. They think he's there just to deliver those things. But really what he's going to tell us in this passage is, I'm I'm here and I'm going to provide bread and fish and I'm going to do some miraculous things for you, but what you really need is me. What what really matters is me. So let me read to to you in John 6 and let's see what God would teach us from this story. John chapter 6, one of the greatest stories uh, in Scripture, I think, and I'm especially fired up about it because I just came back from the Holy Land. And this happens on the Sea of Galilee, which is one of my favorite places. So just a week ago, I was with a group of beloved Ecclesians uh, on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, We were literally, I got to stand and teach in the place that Jesus uh, fed Peter this beautiful meal at his resurrection. I love to put our feet in the water. We go out in a boat, this small boat that's similar to the size of a boat Jesus would have been on. Uh, We throw some nets and try to catch fish and we sing and pray and worship. And this is the place this story happened. Uh, Tradition calls this little mountain on that side of the the Sea of Galilee, the mountain of multiplication. And in John 6, it tells us that once this has transpired, John's been telling the story, Jesus made his way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which some these days call the Sea of Tiberias. And as Jesus walked, a large crowd pursued him. 
By the way, I'm drinking coffee during Lent because it's really a bean. So it's a bean. So I've, that's how I justify it anyway. So if you want to judge me and say I'm not spiritual enough because I didn't give up coffee, that's your own issue. I'm, I'm doing, it's a bean. So just like any other bean. Um, I felt some of your judgment, so I'm just telling you. It tells us as Jesus walked, a large crowd pursued him, hoping to see new signs and miracles. His healings of the sick and the lame were garnering great attention, and Jesus went up a mountain and found a place to sit down and teach. Right? What do you do if you want to escape the crowds? You, you hike. You go up high. It's difficult to get there. And his disciples gathered around. And the celebration of the Passover, one of the principal Jewish feasts, would take place soon. But when Jesus looked up, he could see an immense crowd. This is a huge understatement. It was a massive crowd. They were coming towards him. And Jesus realized, like, he's going to be there on the mountain teaching. And people had just endured this long hike. And Jesus realizes people are going to be hungry. So he turns to Philip and he says, hey, Philip. Where's a place to buy bread so that these people may eat? Isn't it interesting when Jesus asks you a question because you know Jesus already knows the answer to the question, But part of the exercise is engaging you. That's part of my job today is to prod you with some questions that'll hopefully lead you towards truth. And it tells us Jesus knew what he was planning to do, but he asked Philip nonetheless, and he had something to teach, and it started with a test, and this was the test. So he said, Philip, how would we do this? And this is what Philip says. Philip says, I could work for more than half a year. So think about your salary for a year, half of it. Philip says, I could work for half a year and still not have the money to buy enough bread to give each person a very small piece. So What we know from this story is they call it the feeding of the 5,000, but it was 5,000 men. There were women and children as well. This could be feeding of the 25,000. So Philip says, a half year's salary would give everybody a very small piece. How long do you think Philip would have to work to make the money to buy enough bread for everybody to have a buffet, all you can eat? 30 years, 35 years, 40 years? Philip's explaining, Jesus, This is impossible. We don't have the money. We don't have a place to buy the bread. So Philip's like, Jesus, this is the deal, right? Anybody else have this problem for me? I I see myself as Philip. I can often look at most of my life, and the first thing I can tell you is what I don't have. Anybody else do this? You go open your refrigerator, and all you see in your refrigerator are the things that you wish were in your refrigerator. I just got back from Israel, so I got a bunch of like grocery store hummus. I'm not eating that hummus, right? I've just had the hummus. Like, I'm not eating grocery store hummus. Like, that cheese looks, I think it's old. I don't know what's that. I want sushi. There's something else I want that's not in my refrigerator, and I focus on what I don't want. I think we do the same thing spiritually. We think, you know what? If I just had somebody in my family that supported me like this person did, If I just had the job my uncle has and his financial resources, then I'd figure it out. If I had this, this, and this, then we could do it. Philip looks at it and all he can see is what we don't have. He tells Jesus, I don't know. I don't know how we do it. We don't have what we need to do that. But as Philip speaks up, so does Andrew. Andrew's Peter's brother. He speaks up and says, "I, I don't know, Jesus, what we don't have. I know what we do have. This is what we got. We got a young boy in the crowd. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. 
But he says, that's practically useless in feeding a crowd this large. But Andrew knows, is like, Jesus, I'll just tell you what we have. You're Jesus. You can figure it out from there, right? Can you imagine, Ecclesia, what it would be like to be the kid that gave two fish and five barley loaves? Anybody here ever invested in anything and gotten a decent return? Can you imagine getting a million percent return? Like you step in and, it's, and every other investment for this kid is like from now on, it's like, man, this didn't really work, right? It just, this, this is what God does. God multiplies things. And I got to tell you, I love that God uses kids. He uses kids still today in our community to teach us. Our kids have faith. They've got a faith that we need to catch on to. One of the greatest miracles that ever happened in the life of our church happened because of one of our kids, one of my kids specifically. We were doing our very first Advent, and I'll just tell you, we, we, we were gathering money during Advent to raise money for clean water. And my then daughter, Trinity, she was seven years old. Um, Trinity had been saving money all year to buy an American Girl doll. Um, she was like, that's what she wanted. That's all she cared about. And she had heard, we had some children's sermon. We were talking about people that need water. Christmas Eve came and she said, Dad, I've decided I don't need an American Girl doll as much as people need water. And I want to give my hundred dollars, right? And I got up and told the story and Trinity brought the money. And I'll tell you, we had a bunch of like lawyers and entrepreneurs in the church and they were thinking they might give a hundred bucks, right? And instantly when the seven-year-old ups them, right? They have to like... <laughs> They got to increase their giving, right? You can't have the seven-year-old out give you. I mean, seven-year-old girls. And, and she just, it was, a, it was an act of major faith for her, right? And I'll tell you, it, we, we didn't have much giving at that point. It just started to multiply this small gift from a kid, right? And for her, by the way, um, part of what happened, because dad told the story, right, was all these older girls that had outgrown their American Girl dolls, like they had American Girl dolls sitting around. She ended up with like nine American Girl dolls, right? <laughs> So she still thinks this is how it works. Like you just give this little gift and it'll just multiply, right? Can you imagine being that kid? Like I'm convinced we're gonna get to heaven and that guy's walking around like I'm the kid with the two fish and barley loves t-shirt like all the time. Like that was me. What'd you guys do? You guys do anything? I gave the two fish and the five barley loves. Like God did something big with me, right? And that we're all longing to be a part of something like that. I got to tell you, this is what God is still doing in our midst today. The stories I was telling you from the Colombia-Venezuela border and inside of Venezuela, is an, they're an opportunity for us with something very small. Isn't it amazing that this kid didn't go, I got two fish and, and five barley loaves. I'm going to eat what I want. Then I'll give Jesus the rest. How many of us think, like, if I had that, I'd, I'd have gone, hey, I'll eat my lunch, and Jesus, whatever's left over, he just gives it all, right? Anybody in that place that you're like, when I got more than I'm going to give, I'm going to be super generous when I have an abundance, but I'm going to wait till the abundance comes. It's not the way it works, right? And I got to tell you, Ecclesia, it's unbelievable. Our pastors like William that I was telling you about, um, that just at their church, People, they're hungry. In Caracas, people are hungry. And their church, for a dollar a, a person, can feed people as much as they can eat. Uh, William's been sending me some photos because uh, we're doing a, an experiment, really, 
uh, where we're seeing what happens in churches that feed people every week. And I, I can tell you already what we're learning is people that feed, churches that feed people every week, they grow, people grow in their faith, they get healthier, kids are healthier. And I got a dream, we're just one church, but we're gonna share as much as we can. I got a dream where every church in Venezuela is feeding the people in their church every Sunday. Every Sunday people come and they're eating spiritually and physically, right? And they're making soup, they're just making food and they're sharing it abundantly. I don't know about you, Ecclesia, but has anybody done anything miraculous with a dollar recently? I mean, we just kind of throw them around, don't we? One dollar, it's a huge difference. It feels to me like this kid that's been able to see things multiplied, right? So, so the story goes on. The, the, the fish and the barley loaves are offered and then Jesus says, tell the people to sit down. And they all sat together in a large grassy area and those counting the people reported approximately 5,000 men, not including the women and children. It was a lot of people sitting in the crowd and Jesus picked up the bread, he gave thanks to God and he passed it to everyone. And he repeated this ritual with the fish, men, women and children all ate until their hearts were content. I gotta tell you, these people hiked, they were in a remote place. Anybody have this problem? I love to exercise, I love to hike. You know what happens when I hike? I get really hungry, that's my problem. The more I exercise, the hungrier I am. And then I eat too much, and then I need to exercise again. I'm just gonna cut it all out, right? Because the exercise is just making me eat more. Anybody else have that problem? Or is it just me, right? It just, it, it just feeds a cycle. I just need to lay back and be lethargic for a while. I think it's gonna help. Right? They'd gone all the way up there. It was like these Venezuelan pastors that we gathered. We just had snack time, right? And they turned their little cocktail plates into a pyramid, right? They just piled the food up. They were hungry. People ate as much as they wanted. It tells us when the people had all they could eat, he told the disciples to gather the leftovers. He said, go and collect the leftovers so we're not wasteful. And they filled 12 baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves. And after witnessing this sign that Jesus did, the people stirred in conversation. And the crowd said, this man must be the prophet that God was coming, said was coming into the world. Right? This Lent, I think we can be a part of a miracle where our small gifts are multiplied. And so every week, when we come to communion, we're gonna have the baskets out. And I'm just asking you to look every week and say, okay, what did I save by eating simply? And I'm gonna share that with our brothers and sisters in Venezuela, and we're gonna see how God might multiply it, and I think it'll be a beautiful thing. What we know happens after this is that they go out into the boat. Jesus sends the disciples on ahead, and then he comes to join them. I'm gonna tell you this story from Matthew because I like the version in Matthew better. I'm gonna tell you two quick stories and then we'll take communion. In Matthew 14, this is what it tells us, that the disciples were out in the boat, there was a big storm, and that Jesus comes out to join them, but not in a traditional way, like on a boat he decides to walk on the water, which kind of freaks them out, right? And Jesus goes out and he just tells them, be still, it is I, you have nothing to fear. Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, then command me to meet you on the water. I love stories with Peter in it because I identify with Peter so much. Peter goes big. And you know what that means? When Peter fails, he fails big, but he goes big, right? And I identify with Peter. I have these moments where I just got faith oozing out of my pores. I go, I got God on my side. I can do anything, right? It's just literally coming out of every pore of my being. Like when you eat too much garlic, anybody go to Mai's, the Vietnamese place, and they have that garlic. It's so soft, you can't stop eating it. But for like two weeks, everybody that meets you is like, have you been eating garlic? I, 
You smell like garlic, right? I got those moments where I just got faith, right? I got a ton of it. But you know what happens to me? I go from like so much faith to one problem, right? One problem. And it's like I'm, I'm decimated, right? Peter stepped out of the boat onto the water. He began walking towards Jesus. He was living in faith. But then he remembered how strong the wind was. Anybody else have that problem? One thing. And all of a sudden, I'm sinking and spiraling. But when he remembered how strong the wind was, his courage caught in his throat, and he began to sink. When you start to sink, this would be a great prayer to memorize. It's a really simple prayer, right? Peter just says really clearly, Master, save me. This would be a great prayer to pray this week. God, I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to figure this out. Please save me. And it tells us that immediately Jesus reached for Peter and he caught him. And Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt and dance back and forth between following me and heeding fear, right? He said, just follow me. And then Jesus and Peter climbed into the boat, say it with me, into the boat. That was the weakest of any service we've ever had here. (laughs) Then Jesus and Peter climbed into the boat. Together. Together. I don't know about you, but when I fail, it's great to imagine Jesus picking me up and pulling me in and stepping into the boat with me. And me and Jesus are in the boat together. I don't know what boat you're in. I don't know if you feel like it's sinking. Sometimes mine feels like it's sinking. But it helps me a lot to know that Jesus is in the boat with me and that he doesn't just get in when we're doing it all right. Peter was doing it wrong. He needed help. And Jesus steps into the boat with him. And the wind became still. I don't, I don't know what risk you're taking. I don't know what problems you're facing, but I find great hope in it. And the reason I love this passage in John 6 is we get this first miracle, we get the second miracle in this lesson with Peter, and then Jesus goes on to explain what the first miracle meant. And so he goes on to explain, hey, listen, what happened was everybody heard about free bread and free fish, and they started coming to Jesus, right? So he had a gathering of people coming around, and they were like, hey, Jesus, do the little bread thing again. They thought Jesus was a vending machine. And Jesus turns to them, right? He says, that's not the bread you're really looking for, right? What you really need is much more than that. And in John 6, he explains to him, he says this, he says, I'm the bread that gives life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But there's another bread that comes from heaven. And if you eat this bread, you will not die. He he pauses and he says, hey, listen, there's this bread that can just sustain you. And if you go back in Exodus, this is what you find, is that there's this amazing story where Jesus rains down this provision. Jesus is saying what? He's saying, I'm not just your provider. I'm your provision. I'll sustain you. He says, it's like the manna that they ate in the desert, right? Anybody remember that story? I was going to read it to you from Exodus, but I'll just give you a quick summary, right? So they're there, and Jesus, they're hungry. Jesus rains down the bread. But you remember, it was different than anything they'd seen before. What'd they call it? This is church. Somebody needs to know what it's called. Manna, which means, what is it, right? K-S-S-O. Like, what is it? it? It was so different it's, it's like what I like to do when I take, I'll take our staff to Chinatown sometimes and I'll give them $5 and I'll go, go buy something that you don't know what it is and then we'll eat it, right? 
If you have allergies, this may not be a good thing to do. But, but what happens is like we eat something and we're like, we didn't even know, like, is that a, is that a plant? Is that a candy? I don't, I don't even know what it is. Let's just eat it and find out, right? But it's challenging for people because they're like, I've never eaten anything that looks like that before. And, and this is what I think is happening, Ecclesia, for many of us. God's provision for what's next, his next miracle, it looks so different than what you've known. It, it's not identifiable, right? And so you've got places in your life that the dysfunction, it could be dysfunction, but you've lived in it so long that you're just like, this is normal. And you would prefer the normal of the past as to what God's offering in the future because it's just this unknown. And this is what Lent does. Lent calls you in a new sacred rhythm and it says, hey, what if, what if I've got a new season for you and it's really different? You remember what else he said about the manna? They'd gather it and how much were they to gather? Enough for the day. Jesus reiterates this again later in his prayer, right? The daily bread. You remember what happened when they gathered too much and they had extra and they held on to it? They had maggots in their manna. Nobody wants maggot manna, right? <laughs> now, this is hard for a culture of people where like none of us go home today. Probably not one of us here goes home to just enough food for today, right? Literally, the apocalypse could happen. We could all be in our houses. We could live for a long time because we have Costco, right? Because we buy food in bulk. So we have like, and I'm not telling you not to buy food in bulk. Costco is amazing. They make dips that I can't even believe how good they taste. And some of them are like yogurt based. They're not even fattening. It's amazing. Costco is great, right? But the reality is like, it's not about just having enough food. I hope you've got enough money to live beyond today, right? I hope you got an emergency fund like Dave Ramsey says, and if something happens, you can pay for it. But what we do is we're often focused on the problems of tomorrow and next week. Anybody else have this struggle? You're trying to figure out next week's problems and you can't live today. You can't worship today because you're worried about next week's problems. And, and God's saying, hey, I got it covered. Could you just focus on today and walk with me today? And Jesus is saying, I'm that bread of life. Let's go back to John. And in John, this is what he says, right? He says, just like they ate manna in the desert, right? I'm your bread. He says, I'm the living bread that's come down from heaven to rescue those who eat it. And anyone who eats this bread will live forever. This bread that I give, I will give breeze life into the cosmos. This bread is my flesh. And for the disciples that were paying attention, they were not nearly as surprised when Jesus came to the Passover and he broke the bread and said, this is my body. Right? And, and every week, Ecclesia, I hope you come here for, for communion. Uh, hopefully the preaching's not so bad, the music is great, but every week we break the bread and we remind you, this is the body of Christ and it was broken for you. This is the bread that invites you into eternal life that reminds you of the things that truly matter most. Now, there's a lot of things about these stories that I love. Let me share my last point with you and then we'll take communion. Uh, what, what I love in, in both these first two stories is that God could have done all of this. Jesus could have done it on his own. But isn't it amazing that he needed a kid that would step forward and make a sacrifice and put in all that he had? He didn't eat what he wanted, he gave it all to God. He had some skin in the game, right? 
And I think ultimately what God's asking us is to say, is there anybody here that will put some skin in the game? You'll actually take a risk like Peter and go, hey, I could totally fall on my face. I could drown for all I know, but I'm gonna step out on the water. And I believe Lent is an opportunity to disrupt our lives in a holy way, to pray more often, to read the scriptures more often, to engage in a spiritual practice that we realize life is not about us and getting what we want every day, but about turning to God and sharing generously with others. And I believe, Ecclesia, that it's the remedy for many of the things that ail us. So would you give me a moment to pray for you and with you? And then we're gonna come to communion. Lord, we believe your words today that you are the bread of life, that the bread that we're blessing even now is a physical reminder that you have come and you've made a sacrifice so that we don't have to fear tomorrow. It's much more than the manna that provides for today. It's a reminder that you walk with us in all times and in all of the struggles that we will face. And we ask today, God, that you will give us the faith to live a daily practice, that each day we can wake up and be present with you today, not worrying about the problems of tomorrow or next week or next month, but trusting that you have a plan and provision. God, we pray today that you would allow us to be a part of your miraculous work. That like this kid with very little to offer, you took little and you multiplied it into abundance. And we pray today that our brothers and sisters that eat in Venezuela from the very small gifts that we've given, that it would be multiplied. And that not only those kids would eat and the food would be multiplied, but their, the kids, their health, their family's health, that people would be able to stay in Venezuela, that they wouldn't have to leave their home and risk uh, danger and difficulty. And that our gifts would be multiplied in a way that would bring healing and comfort in the midst of their suffering. God, we pray that you would do a work inside of us, that our hearts would be different. From the time that we began this journey on Ash Wednesday to our completion of it as we walk with you on Easter Sunday. God, we trust you. We choose to follow you. We pray we'd find hope and encouragement as we walk with brothers and sisters in this room and across the globe. We pray all of this together, and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.